0: Hear now the reading of God's holy word. Now it came to pass after these things that it was told Abraham, saying, Indeed, Milcah also has borne children to your brother Nahor. Huz his firstborn, Buz, his brother, Kemuel the father of Aram, Chesed, Hazel, Pildash, Jidlaf, and Bethuel. And Bethuel begot Rebekah. These eight Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother, His concubine, whose name was Ruma, also bore Teba, Gaham, Thehash, and Mekah. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. So Sarah died in Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham came to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. Then Abraham stood up from before his dead and spoke to the sons of Heth, saying, I am a foreigner and a visitor among you. Give me property for a burial place among you, that I may bury my dead out of my sight. And the sons of Heth answered Abraham, saying to him, Hear us, my lord, you are a mighty prince among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our burial places. None of us will withhold from you his burial place, that you may bury your dead. Then Abraham stood up and bowed himself to the people of the land, the sons of Heth. And he spoke with them, saying, if it is your wish that I bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and meet with Ephron, the son of Zohar, for me, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he has, which is at the end of his field. Let him give it to me at the full price as property for a burial place among you. Now Ephron dwelt among the sons of Heth, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the presence of all the sons of Heth, all who entered at the gate of his city, saying, No, my Lord, hear me. I give you the field and the cave that is in it. I give it to you in the presence of the sons of my people. I give it to you. Bury your dead. Then Abraham bowed himself down before the people of the land. And he spoke to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, saying, If you will give it, please hear me. I will give you money for the field. Take it from me and I will bury my dead there. And Ephron answered Abraham, saying to him, My lord, listen to me. The land is worth four hundred shekels of silver. What is that between you and me? So bury your dead. And Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abraham weighed out the silver for Ephron, which he had named in the hearing of the sons of Heth. Four hundred shekels of silver, currency of the merchants. So the field of Ephron, which was in Makphelah, which was before Mamre, the field and the cave which was in it, and all the trees that were in the field, which were within all the surrounding borders, were deeded to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the sons of Heth before all who went in at the gate of the city. And after this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah before Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. So the field and the cave that is in it were deeded to Abraham by the sons of Heth, as property for a burial place. This is the word of the Lord. May he bless it in our hearing. You may be seated. Let us pray. Father, as we come to your word again this Lord's day, I pray that you would prepare our hearts and minds to receive it, that even in this account of sorrow, As we see Abraham experiencing and dealing with the death of his beloved wife, we also see him living according to your covenant faithfulness and according to your covenant promises. And so I pray that those promises would be shown forth to us, the promises of the gospel, the promises of the resurrection that we have in Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen. There comes a time near the end of life where we all must, in one way or another, get our affairs in order. There are matters like estate planning, funeral planning, and burial arrangements. These are the things that we all have to deal with when coming to life's end. We do this for various reasons. We do this, for one, to avoid being a burden on our families, on our descendants as much as possible. We also often find in the end of life a need, a desire to be around family, to hear from them, to make sure that they are going to be taken care of when we are no longer around. We are in the book of Genesis, and we are now very near the end of Abraham's story. And the next couple of chapters, in fact, describe the final years of Abraham's life and the steps that he is taking in preparation for his own death. But in this passage today, we also see the death of Sarah, his beloved wife, his companion. And so there arises this need for a place to bury her and eventually to be buried himself. There is also this matter of what to do with Isaac, the son of promise. He is supposed to be the carrier of the covenant promises to the next generation. By this point in our narrative, he is an adult, And yet he is not yet married. He has no children of his own. And so this also needs to be addressed. And Abraham needs to take initiative to address it while he is still alive. This will be addressed in the next chapter. Abraham is essentially in these chapters in Genesis getting his house in order late in his life. Today he is confronted by the reality of death in perhaps the most sorrowful and painful of ways the death of Sarah, his beloved wife. It has been throughout this whole story that has been recorded for us in Genesis that Abraham and Sarah were old. They were old when we met them. They were older than people usually were who did the things that they did, embarking on this journey, taking on this new nomadic lifestyle in a strange land. And then when they finally had their only son, By that point, Abraham was 100 years old and Sarah was 90 years old. But the passage of time finally does catch up with them. And in this passage, it claims Sarah. And in this episode, Abraham's status as a sojourner and an exile in the land becomes all the more significant and all the more evident. He doesn't even have a place to bury his beloved wife. He must acquire one not only for her, but so that he too will eventually have a place to be buried. And so we will look at this text this morning in four points. First, there is a bit of a preview. That is what we see in those final verses of chapter 22. There are preparations for the future of the story, an update on Abraham's family that will be significant for things to come. And then second, we see the passing in chapter 23, verses 1 and 2 of Sarah. In her old age, she dies. And then third, we see a purchase. In verses 3 through 16, we see this real estate transaction that Abraham enters into. But it is not merely a real estate transaction. It carries more significance for him and for us. And then fourth, there is a place in verses 17 through 20. Abraham acquires the land We learn more about that land in those final verses. So again, we have a preview, we have passing, a purchase, and a place. So first we see a preview in chapter 22, verses 20 through 24. It might not be immediately clear as we're reading through this text why exactly this section is here. We haven't heard anything from Abraham's extended family for quite a while. We haven't heard anything from the family of Nahor since Abraham left and went on his journey to Canaan. So why are we hearing about them now? We heard about the son, the only son of Abraham's other brother, that being Lot, a few chapters ago, at which point he disappears from the story. We don't hear from him again. But why now are we hearing about Abraham's other brother and his family? Well, this section of the text fits into the larger situation that Abraham is dealing with at the end of his life and how he is making preparations for the future. It is from this family of Nahor that a wife for Isaac will be sought and found. In fact, later on down the road, Abraham's grandson, Jacob, will also receive not one but two wives from the descendants of Nahor. Now, why does this matter? It will become imperative, it will become important for Abraham and his descendants not to intermarry with the Canaanites, not to marry the pagan inhabitants of the land. Now, this does not necessarily mean that Nahor's descendants were pious or God-fearing. We will find out in future passages that that's not really the case. In fact, we already see in this passage that Nahor himself practices polygamy, He has a wife, but then he also has a concubine who bears him several children. We've talked about this before, and this is not the last time we'll see this, even among God's people. But it does bear repeating that this is a deviation from God's created order. It was never something that was good and acceptable in God's sight. But what we also get here that is the piece of foreshadowing, we find that Bethuel, the son of Nahor, begot Rebekah who would later be sought and found and be the wife for Isaac. Isaac will be marrying a somewhat distant cousin of his. This was the sort of thing much more common and acceptable in that day. You can remember that Abraham was even married to his half-sister. But Isaac will marry his cousin's daughter. Given that Nahor probably had children much younger than Abraham at a relatively normal time in life, and Abraham didn't until much later, Though Isaac and Rebekah will be close in age, they're actually a generation apart. But this report on Abraham's extended family also serves as a reminder to him that he needs to be mindful of his own descendants, his own covenantal lineage. And it is after this in chapter 24 that he will make the necessary preparations to acquire a wife for Isaac. Isaac. But then we come to our second point. After this preview of things to come, we come to the passing in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 23. So we see that Sarah died at the age of 127. This would mean that Abraham was about 137, although he would live for another 38 years after this. This would also mean that Isaac by this time was about 37 years old. Sarah had had a good long life, and she had seen her son into adulthood, even despite him being born in her old age. But the scourge of death comes for all. Even though Abraham's house is the house chosen and favored in the covenant of grace, it is not free from what sin and death have done to the world. And so Sarah dies at Kiriath Arba, which was also known as Hebron. In the southern part of Canaan. It is relatively rare in biblical narratives, as we see often these genealogies, these accounts of the great men of old, that we actually have an account of what happens at the death of their wives. But here with Sarah, we do have one of these where the death of a wife and the events surrounding it are recorded for us. Another example is later Rachel, the beloved wife of Jacob. Her death will be recorded in detail. But otherwise, the death of the wives, while sometimes recorded, it's often just sort of a side note. But Sarah is unique as the mother of the line of promise, and so she does receive this particular note at her death. Now Abraham responds to her death in a way one might expect. He mourns, he weeps. This was his beloved, his companion for all these decades of his sojourn, and now she was gone. Even the mother of the covenant line faces death. And yet Abraham's grief does not seem particularly dwelt upon, it's not as though he doesn't grieve, it's not as though he's not sad, it's not as though he's not facing perhaps the greatest of human losses. But as with all of the people of God, Abraham does not have to grieve as one without hope. The promises of God to him and to her have been fulfilled and will continue to be fulfilled even in death. And Abraham has faith and confidence in that. But Sarah's death now brings Abraham a rather urgent logistical problem, which we come to in our next point. After the preview and the passing, we come to a purchase in verses 3 through 16. Abraham needs a place to bury Sarah. Apparently, this is not an issue where Abraham has had to deal with while he's been in Cain, and none of the others of his immediate family have died. So we see that Abraham speaks to these sons of Heth. This would be the people he was dwelling near at the time. Other translations refer to these as Hittites. It's a very similar word in the Hebrew, though not to be confused with other Hittites who live in what is now known as Turkey. These Hittites are Canaanites. They are the strange and foreign people that Abraham Abraham has sojourned among for these many years. And Abraham comes to them and he asks them for property for a burial place. This is the first time at any point in his life in Canaan, that Abraham has requested to own real estate. Up until this point, he owned nothing. He was a wanderer. He was dwelling on the lands of others. Yet Abraham's first property acquisition in Canaan will be for a use that probably wouldn't be one that comes to mind when we think of why you might want to buy land. Usually think of buying land to build on, to live on, to grow things on, to work on. But the only piece of Canaan that Abraham will ever own in his lifetime is a burial plot. Writing about this, John Calvin says, he did not desire to have a foot of earth whereon to fix his tent. He only took care about his grave. And he especially wished to have his own domestic tomb in that land, which had been promised to him for an inheritance, for the purpose of bearing testimony to posterity that the promise of God was not extinguished either by his own death or that of his family, but that it then rather began to flourish, and that they who were deprived of the light of the sun and of the vital air yet always remained joint partakers of the promised inheritance. So what this means is Abraham is exercising faith in the promises of God that extends beyond death. We don't know to what extent the realities of the resurrection had been revealed to Abraham, but his actions show that he knows something. He has confidence that the promises of God don't end for him at his death. He would own a tomb in the land because even if he didn't have anything else in the land, it would be a reminder to future generations that God's promises were true and they were going to be fulfilled even if they didn't live to see them. And also that Abraham and those of his line would again taste God's blessings in the land of the living. Now, there's other significance to Abraham wanting his own burial plot. See, the Canaanites, the occupants of the land, they would have had places to bury the dead. They also would have had their own burial practices, and they would have gladly let Abraham share in them both the land and the practices. But Abraham recognizes a spiritual reality with physical and temporal consequences. Abraham and his house worship God. They worship Yahweh. They do not worship the pagan gods of the Canaanites. And he doesn't want those who die in the Lord to be intermingled with those who die apart from the Lord. And to do, in doing so, be polluted by any of these pagan rituals or practices. Death remains even in our day our increasingly pagan and secular age a situation that almost everyone assigns spiritual and religious significance to though many may though many suppress the truth about god and unrighteousness there is still written on the hearts of even unbelievers an imprint of god's truth concerning the resurrection and the afterlife Why do so many who never darken the door of a church in their lives still want church funerals for themselves and their family members? Back when America was a more decisively Christian nation, almost all burial sites were part of and located on church properties. Heidi used to live in Michigan. I've been out to visit a couple times, and on almost every township of land you'll see Even out in the country, you'll see an old church. Often those churches are still open. They still worship the Lord there. But on every one of those church properties, you'll see a cemetery. The people are born and they live and they die as a part of the church. Or in other more urban contexts, you'll see churches that have crypts underneath them. In the basements of churches, there's tombs, there's places for burial. So what does this tell us? Well, it does tell us that funerals and burial in this nation used to almost entirely be Christian affairs. People lived and died and buried, again, as I said, as part of the church. This secularism and atheism we see all around us, that's new. That's not the way that it has been. But also having places of burial at church meant that every time you would go to church, every Sunday, you would walk by the graves and you would see the graves of those who had gone before you in the faith into death. What would that do? It would serve as a constant reminder that death is real. Death is coming. In so many ways, our culture wants to ignore and sanitize and obscure the reality of death. Put it away off in a corner so we never have to think about it and how all of us are going to go through it. We have ways and places now of dealing with death that essentially remove it from our lives. We have special facilities where people go to die, whereas historically people tended to die at home. We have public cemeteries, they're usually built out on the edge, out away from town, Somewhere where you only had to go see them and only have to go look at them if you particularly want to. Even now you see people shying away from the language of funerals when someone dies. They talk about, well, we need to have a celebration of life. We have to keep things positive and happy. We have to bury our grief even though we have lost someone who is dear to us. This was not the case with Abraham. Abraham knew death was coming. And the only real estate holding that he ever has in Canaan in his life is a burial plot. A perpetual reminder and memorial that those of the covenant line had died in the Lord. Not with or not as the pagans who have no hope. Now we also see this distinction being evident in how Abraham acquires this property. So he comes and he asks the sons of Heth for a burial plot. And in verse 6 of chapter 23, they answer him, he may bury his dead in the choices to their burial places. So in the places and ways that they bury the dead, he's welcome to do that. But again, that's not good enough. Abraham will not bury the Lord's dead among the pagans. He will have his own place. And so he enters into this negotiation to purchase the cave of Machpelah from Ephron. He wants to buy it at the full price. He'll pay the fair market value, whatever that is. Now at first, Ephron isn't interested in taking that money. These people, these sons of Heth, even though they are pagans, they respect Abraham. In verse 6, they call him a mighty prince among them. God has continued to bless Abraham. And though these people have no particular fear of the Lord, They cannot help but recognize God's hand of favor upon Abraham. And so in light of this, Ephron's willing to just give Abraham this land for nothing. But Abraham insists that he pay. Now, why is he doing this? Is he just trying to be modest? Is he trying to avoid being a burden on Zohar? You've probably been through something like this in your life. Someone gives you a gift. Someone gives you money. There's the back and forth, oh, you really don't have to do that. Oh, you shouldn't have. Oh, yes, I do. I should have. On and on it goes. There could maybe be some of that going on here with Abraham, but there is more to it than that. Abraham is intent on owning the place for himself in such a way that no one else can claim ownership for it and no one else can claim credit for enriching Abraham in providing a place to bury those who have died in the Lord. He especially doesn't want any of that credit going to the pagans of Canaan. We saw something similar back when Abraham aided in the liberation of Sodom in chapter 14. He was offered at the end of that by the king of Sodom the spoils of the battle, but he refused them. In chapter 14, verses 22 and 23, he gave his reasons. He said, I have raised my hand to the Lord God most high, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will take nothing from a thread to a sandal strap, and that I will not take anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. So Abraham knows that all he has and all that he is are gifts from God who has blessed his sojourning in the land thus far. When he seeks a burial place for the people of God in the land, he wants it to be a place provided not out of the generosity or the influence of the pagan nations around. He wants it to be something provided out of the abundance of what God has given him. And so he will pay because his money is God's money. It is what God has provided for him, and he wants no one else to have the glory of, And the fame that comes from blessing Abraham, but God alone. And so Abraham insists on paying for the land. So Ephron names his price, which is 400 shekels of silver. This is actually a lot of money. Would have been about 20 pounds of solid silver. And compared to some other property purchases recorded in scripture, it's a high price. David paid only 50 shekels to purchase the land that the temple would be built on. Or Judas, infamously the 30 pieces of silver for which he sold Jesus, that bought a field. So either this is a very valuable piece of land, or Ephron is inflating the price to again try to discourage Abraham from paying for it. But it doesn't work. Abraham does pay the money, all of it out of the abundance of which God has given him. And so, for the first time in his long life, Abraham becomes a landowner in Canaan. This brings us to our final point. After the preview and the passing and the purchase, we come to the place in verses 17 through 20. What has Abraham bought and how? So we see that the transaction is legally executed. The money is weighed out. The property is deeded before these witnesses at the city gate. That was the typical place where business was done in the ancient world. It would be at the city gate where everyone could see and everyone would know what was going on. It'd be like if you buy property now. You probably don't physically transfer the money. That part's left out. That's all electronic now. But you would have to sign a bunch of papers. Some of those have to be notarized. They have to be witnessed. They have to be recorded by the Register of Deeds so that there's a record of the transaction forever. There has to be the proper description of the property so it's known what's being sold and why. And of course, all the witnesses' records so that if any dispute arises, the truth of the transaction is known and recorded. We also have recorded for us in Scripture the description of this property, its general location, what was included in it, not just the cave, but the field, all the trees, all the other things in the field. And it was done in the presence of these sons of Heth. They were called on as witnesses. They know that Abraham brought, bought the property and now he owned it. And then once the transaction was closed, Abraham did what he purposed to do he buried Sarah in the cave. In the field he did what he said he would do with the land. There's two important things that this confirms. First, it confirms that Abraham acted in good faith. He wasn't just using Sarah's death as an excuse to get land from the Canaanites. He really did buy it as a burial place. But also what this but also another significant fact we see here or we'll see later, is that this will be the site for the burial of three generations of Abraham's family. Sarah is buried there, Abraham will be buried there, Isaac and Rebekah will be buried there, and then eventually Abraham's grandson, Jacob, and his wife, Leah, will be buried there. Like Abraham, they're going to be sojourners and strangers in the land. They're not going to possess any other parts of the land. And yet, buying and making this tomb, it is demonstrating faith and confidence that God would keep his promises and eventually give Abraham's descendants the land, even if they don't get it for themselves in their lifetimes. Their legacy, the legacy of Abraham's descendants, but also their future was being memorialized in this place. Now, It might be easy for us to look at this text and dismiss most of it as a rather mundane occurrence. We do have the death of Sarah. That's very important. We have the record of Abraham's extended family. That will be important later. But beyond that, it seems we have a detailed record of a real estate transaction. But what we see here is even in the midst of a great personal grief and sorrow, Abraham is living and acting according to faith in God and his covenant promises. Abraham honors those who die in the Lord because he knows somehow, some way that they will yet live. And he buries them in the land of promise, even though the promise has not come to full fruition yet because he believes that even if he won't see it himself, God will keep his promises to him, even beyond death. And God does keep his promises to his people, even beyond death. He has demonstrated this in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Son of God became a man, took on the form of a humble human servant, and he lived the perfect life of righteousness, that Abraham and Sarah and everyone else has failed to do. Jesus suffered and died to pay the penalty of sin for his people. He was buried in a tomb, but on the third day, he was raised from the dead. We know from texts like Paul's writing in 1 Corinthians 15 that as Jesus lives, as he was raised from the dead, he is the first fruits of the resurrection for all that believe in him. All who die in the Lord will be raised as he has been raised. That is the hope of God's people. And so perhaps you're here today facing the reality of death. Someone that you know and love has died or is facing death. You yourself are facing the prospect of death. Death is going to come for all of us eventually. Eventually. But Jesus Christ is faithful to his people even beyond death. Even as Abraham did not fully see the promises of God revealed in his life, he had the hope that he would, and he acted as though he would. He lived his life in light of eternal hope. All who call upon the name of the Lord, all who repent of their sins and trust in Jesus for salvation may have this same hope of everlasting life, hope beyond death, hope in the face of death. And so my hope and prayer today is that all here gathered would have Abraham's hope and live as God's people in light of this hope during our sojourn in this world. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this word that you've given us. We thank you that what we see is Abraham living according to faith in you, a faith that extends beyond this world, beyond this beyond this life, but into the resurrection, the resurrection that we have seen the first fruits of in Christ our Lord, the resurrection that we are united to him in and will one day partake after this life is over. I pray that we would live lives in light of this hope and confidence that we have in you and that we would Be faithful to proclaim this gospel to a world which has no other hope. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information, you can visit our website, hamilopc.com That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com.